interests. Um, I actually have some financial interests, but uh, none related to this talk. And um, I also don't intend to speak about off-label drugs, or, and I'm not receiving any money for this. So some people wonder, what is an obesity researcher doing at a cancer center? And um, overweight and obesity are actually associated with increased risk for several types of cancer, including thyroid, postmenopausal breast cancer, pancreatic cancer, colorectal cancer, endometrial cancer, kidney cancer, uh, and cancers of the gallbladder and esophagus. <clears throat> and the percent of cancer attributable to overweight and obesity vary by cancer type. For postmenopausal breast cancer and colorectal cancer, it's about a 10% increased risk attributable to overweight and obesity. And that attributable risk is as high as 40% for esophageal adenocarcinoma and endometrial cancer. So, all in all, there are about half a million cases worldwide of cancer that are attributable to overweight and obesity. And this uh, is about 3.6% of all new cancers. And in North America, that uh, percentage is actually higher. So it's about 6.2% of cancers are attributable to overweight and obesity here in North America. So what are some of the biological mechanisms that could lead to this increased risk of cancer? For something like esophageal adenocarcinoma, it's probably related to increased acid reflux uh, that accompanies overweight and obesity, and the chronic inflammation uh, that's related to that acid reflux. For endometrial and postmenopausal breast cancer, it's probably related to estrogen that's released from adipose tissue. So after menopause, when the ovaries stop producing estrogen, adipose tissue is the primary source of circulating estrogen in the body. And for other um, types of cancer, there's several uh, adipokines and cytokines that are released from adipose cells. So when people are overweight, they have higher circulating leptin, which is um, thought to be 
uh, lead to cell proliferation. And uh, obese people have lower circulating adiponectin, which is thought to be anti-proliferative. <coughs> In addition, adipose tissue is infiltrated with macrophages and other inflammatory cells that release TNF-alpha, IL-6, PI-1, and other inflammatory factors which are thought to increase cancer risk. So in addition to these direct effects of adipose tissue, obese people also tend to develop insulin resistance. And with that, they have increased levels of circulating insulin and insulin-like growth factors. And there's several biological pathways that connect insulin and insulin-like growth factors with increased cell division um, and, and decreased apoptosis. So given the connection between overweight and obesity, it's very disturbing that about one-third of children in the United States are overweight or obese. And because obesity tracks from childhood to adulthood, these children are likely to become overweight or obese adults. And with that obesity in adulthood, they're at increased risk for cancer. Okay. So in these coming years, as our increased population of overweight kids grow up, we're likely to see increases in the numbers of cancers. Okay. So I'm looking at television as a risk factor for overweight and obesity. It's an established risk factor for weight gain in children. There have been several longitudinal studies that have shown that with increased TV time, children uh, gain weight at higher rates. In addition, television is a highly, highly prevalent exposure. On average, children watch three and a half hours of television a day, and 40% of children have a television in their bedroom by five and a half years old. Okay? Yes, that's the average. So you can imagine that some children are watching much more than that every day. So I'm interested in uh, the first study that I'm going to present is looking at televisions in the bedroom and uh, their relation with weight gain over time. So several studies have found that TVs in the bedroom are cross-sectionally associated with child weight. These studies are limited because the exposure and the outcome were measured at the same time, so we can't discern the temporality of the association. So we don't know if the televisions in the bedroom precede weight gain or whether overweight kids have televisions in their bedroom. The studies were also limited in that they didn't control for the overall viewing hours of television. So what I wanted to know is whether bedroom televisions independent of total TV viewing time uh, is associated with weight gain in children. So to look at this, I used a national um, cohort recruited by Jim Sargent in 2003, and we used Weststat, or he used Weststat to, in uh, a random digit dialing process, to contact 129,000 working residential phone numbers from all 50 states. And of those contacted, about 10,000 had age-eligible adolescents, and 6,500 10 to 14-year-olds were recruited into the study. So we have baseline measures on those 6,500. And at years two, uh, we were able to administer another questionnaire to about 4,500. And four years out, uh, we were able to administer another questionnaire to about 3,000. So we did have some loss to follow up over time. 
So at baseline, we assessed whether the adolescents had a TV in the bedroom, as well as how many TV hours per day they watched, as well as several other covariates like age, gender, socioeconomic status, and uh, parenting style. And at years two and four, we have self-reported height and weight of the adolescents. Oh, and I should just point out, we don't have uh, height and weight at baseline in this group because this was first uh, created as an alcohol study and they had no interest in uh, obesity at the time. So um, the data was weighted so that the data set is representative of a national sample, although I should say that the recruited sample was pretty representative, so the numbers didn't change very much. About 52% of the adolescents were male. It was 62% white, 16% Hispanic, and the mean age at baseline was 12 years old uh, with a median household income of $50,000. So of these adolescents, average age of 12 years, 59% had a bedroom television. And this stayed pretty uh, stable over follow-up. Bedroom televisions were associated with increased child age, being male, and being African American or Hispanic. It was inversely associated with having a... So, Parent, uh, children with parents with higher education were less likely to have a TV in their bedroom. And as income went up, the likelihood also decreased. And more demanding parents were less likely to have, uh, children were less likely to have TVs in their bedroom, as well as uh, more responsive parents. Okay, so looking at uh, children who had a bedroom TV versus those who didn't, those with a bedroom TV tended to watch more television per day, and this is equivalent to about 18 minutes per day. They watched slightly more movies per week, and they played more video games per day. So although 18 minutes per day doesn't seem like a lot, over the course of the year, this is a solid two weeks of school of extra TV viewing. Um, for those who had a TV in their bedroom versus those who didn't. So we looked at whether TV in the bedroom at baseline was associated with change in BMI between years two and four follow-up. And we adjusted for socio-demographics, total TV viewing time, and parental parenting style. And what we found was that having uh, that TV viewing hours per day, what they were positively associated with change in BMI. And independent of those TV viewing hours per day, having a TV in the bedroom was also associated. So each, uh, having a TV in the bedroom was associated with 0.24 BMI unit increase per year. And that's equivalent to about one pound per year of weight gain in those children. Age was inversely associated, and being male was positively associated with BMI change. So what are the possible mechanisms for this association? Um, having a TV in the bedroom may lead to more disrupted sleep. A recent study in Project Viva found in early uh, young children, uh, children with TVs in the bedroom had fewer hours of sleep each night. And low sleep is a known risk factor for weight gain, probably because uh, leptin and ghrelin are disrupted uh, when people have low sleep, and those are uh, satiety and hunger hormones.
In addition, children with TVs in their bedroom may do more eating uh, while watching TV because there's less parental oversight. And they may be exposed to more TV and food advertisements that are marketed directly to their demographic. So the study had several strengths. It was a large national sample, and we followed the children longitudinally. We adjusted for total TV time, so we were able to isolate the effect of TV in the bedroom over and above total TV viewing hours. It was limited in that we only have self-reported height and weight, as well as self-reported TV viewing. We did not measure sleep in the study, and we did not measure ad exposure. In addition, nowadays, TVs are just one form of the media that children are viewing. So we don't have any of these new media uh, categories like tablets or phones. Um, and in addition, this is only an observational study. So we can't determine causality here. And we really need an intervention study um, to determine causality. So in summary, 59% of children in the study had a TV in their bedroom, and having a TV in the bedroom was associated with about one pound of weight gain per year. So we believe that removing bedroom TVs is a concrete action that may impact child health. The American Academy of Pediatrics recommends that bedrooms are screen-free zones, and we feel that our work really highlights the importance of this recommendation and the importance of pediatricians working with parents to implement this recommendation. So now I'd like to switch gears and talk about an R21-funded study that uh, we're conducting now. Yeah? Um, was there any heterogeneity among the states? Um, that's a great question. We, did, we didn't look at that. So the question was, was there heterogeneity among the states? And we didn't look at regional impacts. But that is something that would be worth looking at. Yeah. Are there other questions before I go on? I'll also leave time at the end. Okay, so now I'd like to focus on food advertising. So children see about 5,500 TV food ads per year. Food companies spend about $1.79 billion advertising to kids under 12 years old. And they are not really advertising apples and things like that, as you can imagine. They tend to advertise these highly palatable, uh, high-calorie, low-nutrient foods. And you can see some of the things they do. They have tie-ins with popular movies. Um, they, right here you can see they're having uh, music stars in their commercials. And so children are really inundated with food advertisements. Now, while uh, the food companies are moving to things like advergaming and other forms of advertising, TV food advertisements are still the predominant way that the food companies are reaching kids. So in this study, um, we want to look at whether food ads influence how much children eat in the absence of their hunger, or how much they eat after they've already eaten to satiety. Okay. We're also interested in whether genetic obesity risk factors both directly influence how much kids eat when they're full and whether they modify the relationship between food ads and eating in the absence of hunger. 
So our overarching hypothesis is that some children are genetically predisposed to overconsumption after they view TV food ads. So we're using uh, this term, eating in the absence of hunger, and this is a, um, an experimental paradigm that was uh, established by Fisher and Birch. And what you do is you feed kids a standardized meal. And in our case, we're feed, presenting them with about half of their calorie needs for the day. And we feed them that standardized meal and allow them to eat lunch until they say that they're full and they're done. And then after that, we provide them with a palatable snack food that they can freely consume during the snacking phase. And for this preliminary study, we only have an N of 200, so we looked at a single candidate gene, and we're looking at the fast, fat mass and obesity associated gene. And this um, is one of the first, this is the first uh, gene that was identified in GWAS studies of obesity. And children who are homozygous for the risk allele um, for this particular SNP have a 70% higher odds for obesity than those who are homozygous for the low risk allele. And the, each additional risk allele tends to have an additive effect on obesity. And this is a fairly prevalent uh, allele. About 16% of the population uh, are homozygous for the risk allele. And half are heterozygous. So FTO is highly expressed in the hypothalamus, which is a region uh, of the brain involved in appetite regulation. And, so, and studies suggest that FTO is related to consumption in both adults and children, but the mechanism is unknown. <coughs> so we have recruited close to 200 participants um, into our study. And they're recruited primarily through flyers that are posted in the community. And when they come into our lab, we first do a buccal cell swab uh, from which we can extract DNA and genotype FTO. We then feed them a preload lunch, and again, this provides about half of their caloric intake. They're allowed to uh, select which particular meal they want before they come in to ensure that they can get something that they'll find palatable. Then the kids are randomized to see a television show with either food advertisements or toy advertisements. And the show's about 34 minutes long, and the ads are about seven and a half minutes for each condition. And we intersperse some neutral ads to hide the intent, um, to hide the experimental uh, aims. So we chose about seven and a half minutes of ads to maximize our ability to see an effect of the food advertisements, but that's really not that far off from what children see when they're watching a typical TV show. Um, afterwards, the kids answer questions about their normal media and eating habits, and we measure their height and weight. <laughs> okay, so we have, um, in this analysis, I'm showing you our first 184 participants. We're very excited we're getting close to the end of our recruitment for this preliminary study. About half of the participants were male, 86% were white, 94% uh, were non-Hispanic. This is what we expect from this area. Unfortunately, we're not in the most diverse catchment area. Um, the parents of the kids were highly educated. About 76% of the mothers had a college or graduate uh, degree. And the median household income 
was over, sorry, the household income was over 65,000 per year in 74% of the households. In addition, about 23% uh, of the participants were overweight or obese. Again, what we would expect. Okay, so children ate about 500 calories during lunch. But what really surprised us is after they said they were full, they ate about 500 calories again in snacks. <laughs> we thought we could just stop there because that alone was, was shocking. Um, and we asked them, we asked them, are you full? Are you uncomfortably full? And they all, you know, they say they're full and then they eat again. As a parent, that is striking to me, and I feel like I can take that forward in my life, that my child cannot self-regulate. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so then we looked at uh, consumption related to toy ad exposure in blue and food ad in pink. And this is lunch, which is before the ad exposure, and children in both arms ate about the same amount. In the uh, snacking phase, which is while they're watching these food commercials, children ate about 40 calories more when they were watching food ads versus toy ads, though this difference is not statistically significant. <clears throat> and now looking by genotype, there was a slight but hardly noticeable increase in consumption at lunch for those with at least one obesity risk allele. But the difference was larger in the snacking phase, where children with at least one obesity risk allele ate about 60 calories more than those with no risk alleles. And this was about 0.15 p-value. Again, it was not statistically significant. So one thing that we did was we wanted to put the number of calories they ate in context uh, of how much we expect them to eat per day. So we calculated their estimated daily energy requirement based on Institute of Medicine guidelines. And this estimate accounts for their BMI, their sex, their age, and their um, daily activity level. And what we found was that the amount consumed uh, during the snacking phase, and I'm not showing it, but also during lunch, was uh, positively related with their expected energy requirement. One uh, thing that I'd like to point out, uh, to tell you, is that this variable was not balanced across study arms. So children in the toy ad arm had about 150 calorie higher expected energy requirement on average than those in the food arm. And that's just, we believe, because of our small sample size with randomization. And as we increase the sample size, hopefully this will balance out. So we ran a regression adjusting for this estimated daily energy requirement and food ad condition. And after adjusting for estimated daily energy requirement, the food ad condition was significantly associated with higher consumption. So on average, kids in the food ad condition ate 78 calories more. And this is 78 calories increased consumption related to seeing food ads over just 34 minutes. And I'd like to point out again that kids in general across the country watch about three and a half hours of television a day. 
So this, we think, is a pretty sizable impact of food ad conditions that could lead to substantial uh, weight gain over time. And looking by uh, the low-risk FTO strata and those children who had at least one FTO risk allele, it appears as though the food ad uh, exposure had a large and significant impact in only those with at least one risk allele. Again, this is a smaller strata, but the effect estimate is pretty close to zero. Um, in this small sample size, there are only 150 kids genotyped so far. The P for interaction is not uh, statistically significant. Uh, we just applied for funding to increase our sample size, and we hope that with the increased sample size, we'll have power to actually uh, test for this uh, interaction. So one exciting part about this research is that I've been able to collaborate with uh, psychological brain sciences over on the main campus. And Todd Heatherton and Bill Kelly have a lab there uh, where they study Q reactivity. So uh, during this R21, I approached them and asked them if they'd be co-investigators on the grant, and they agreed. And so one thing that we've done in our preliminary study is we did a preliminary, preliminary study. So we recruited about 20 kids from this behavioral study into an fMRI study, a functional magnetic resonance imaging study. And we uh, <coughs> wanted to test whether food ads elicited certain brain responses. We are particularly interested in reward regions. Um, as well as something called the Action Observation Network. And this, or in Action Observation Network, that was, has been studied in the past related to smoking and other substance abuse. And we additionally wanted to see whether these brain responses were predictive of how much the kids ate in our behavioral study. So again, any uh, child who was uh, part of our behavioral study was and agreed to be contacted again was contacted to see if they were eligible for this uh, for this neuroimaging study and they would come into the lab and after being scanned for safety for the fMRI uh, for the MRI they were shown inside the magnet a TV show and in that TV show were interspersed commercial breaks and the commercial breaks had both food and toy advertisements. So unlike the behavioral experiment where they saw either foods or toy ads, in the magnet they saw both. And what we found in just our small sample size was that the food ads relative to the toy ads elicited activity in the nuclear accumbens and the orbitofrontal cortex, which are both um, reward regions of the brain. Okay, so kids had this, uh, these regions light up um, in their brain when they saw food ads versus toy ads that were related to reward activity. In addition, we saw activity in the insula, which some studies have linked to gustatory processing. So this activity suggests that kids may um, bring taste, uh, they may uh, elicit taste sensations when they see these food ads. And finally, in a 
kind of exploratory analysis, we looked at this region of the somatosensory cortex that was found in a study of older adolescents in uh, the Heatherton and Kelly's lab. And we saw that activity in this region related to seeing food ads was positively associated with how many calories the kids ate in the behavioral experiment. So this is exciting. Um, we, however, because the number of calories they eat is highly related to uh, their BMI and other factors, we ran an adjusted model. And this was only marginally significant after adjustment. So in our larger R01, um, we are hoping to increase the sample size of kids that we image so that we can test the relationship with the ad exposure and brain response further and also see whether genetic factors modify uh, that response. In addition, we want to look at the brain response related to how much the kids eat and again whether those, that relationship is modified by genetics. So this was submitted last week, so you can all send your positive vibes to Washington and hope that this gets funded. Um, but we're excited to continue the collaboration. Okay, so in next steps, we're going to increase our sample size in both the behavioral and neuroimaging study in hopes of increasing our power to test for genetic interactions on brain responses and EAH. And we want to look at both at the main effects and interactive effects. In addition, um, I want to seek funding in the future to longitudinally follow the children um, to explore how responses to food ads and long-term ad exposure relate to weight gain. So we believe that this work has the potential to be very impactful. Um, we believe that it can lead to a better understanding of the heterogeneity of neural and behavioral responses to food cues. And these food cues like I said, are very present on the television and food advertising, but are, are also present all around us. So it may be that when two people walk past the donuts at the morning meeting, they actually have different experiences. And so it's not just about self-control after you see those food cues, but it could also be that some people actually have a stronger reward response upon seeing them that they need to overcome. So this increased understanding may lead to um, better interventions and um, obesity prevention. In addition, we feel that our work could lead to a better understanding about how TV ads impact overconsumption in children. So previous studies that didn't consider genetic factors that may influence response may have underestimated the impact of TV ads on eating in some groups of children. And we feel that it's necessary that our policies protect those who are most vulnerable to negative impacts of TV food advertising. In addition, we hope that our work can inform policy debates um, regarding advertising to children. So the UK has banned advertising food to children. Norway and Sweden have banned advertising food to children. In the US, when we have a third of our kids who are overweight or obese, I think we should consider banning advertising of unhealthy food to children. So children who are overweight or obese or obese are at increased risk for a lifetime of uh, morbidities and even 
a higher overall mortality rate. And these morbidities include cancer. And we feel that it's essential that we work hard to figure out ways to reduce the burden of obesity in our children. Thank you. Oh, well, you can clap. Go ahead. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, good. Um, thank you. So I, I want to, of course, acknowledge um, a lot of people. So uh, Jim Sergeant Todd Heather, Jim Sergeant uh, started the cohort uh, that I analyzed for the first study, and he's also a co-investigator on my R21. Um, he's been very helpful in helping me understand media and marketing influences on behavior. Todd Heatherton and Bill Kelly uh, have been influential in both helping me get a lab space at Psychology and Brain Sciences and also helping with the neuroimaging studies. Um, and Jergong Lee is a statistician on the project. And Jen Emond, who's a new instructor, or not new anymore, an instructor here, has been very helpful um, in helping to think through all of the data analysis. So I'd like to extend a great um, thank you to Raina Cotto-Lansigan, who is the research coordinator on the Eating in the Absence of Hunger study. And it has been a monumental task for us to start our first behavioral study, and she is extremely organized and personable and sane, <laughs> which I'm not always those things. So I really appreciate her help in that. Um, Christina Rapuano did the analyses for the neuroimaging data, and um, she's helped to run the kids through the scanner. And we have a whole army of undergrads <laughs> many of them who have helped with both the behavioral study and the neuroimaging study, so thank you. And these are uh, the many funding sources that have contributed to both studies. Okay, thank you again. So um, I left lots of time for questions and discussion. I, I think that one thing about my line of research is a lot of people have personal experiences and opinions about this, unlike maybe a bench um, experiment. So if anybody has any points uh, or questions, you're welcome now. Yes? So after the children eat their lunch or dinner, I forget what you mentioned, yeah. um, do you actually hand them a snack while they're watching TV or you just put the snacks on the separate side or in the fridge and tell mm -hmm. them you can go help yourself? So we do actually provide them with the snacks, but you can imagine that other studies, mostly in adults, have done every variety of that. They've had snacks that people can get up and go to. They've put them at farther and farther distances to see if that matters. Um, they've told them they can't eat the snacks and see who eats them anyway. So there are lots of um, variations that you can do and hopefully that can, those things we can explore over a lifetime career. Yeah. I was just wondering, like are the snacks there right while they're watching the, the TV? They are. The snacks are there while they're watching the TV. And so I guess it's a question of, is this like, is this a ecologically valid model? And we did ask our children how many kids eat while they watch TV. And the vast majority of them said they do, in fact, snack while is they watch TV. You could, uh, like, look at when they eat, you know? Yes, oh, yeah. So that's a great point. So, um, the point was that we could look at when they're eating relative to the TV ads. And we are, in fact, videotaping the kids while they eat. And 
hopefully with more undergrads and <laughs> more time, we are, we're already we're coding. Suman is here, and she's helping to code that. So we want to see if there is a temporal association between when they see the ads and when they eat. Yes? Okay. So children, uh, well, I'm not sure if this is true or not, but it seems that they probably aren't left alone with <clears throat> just a variety of snacks and free reign on a regular <laughs> deal. I mean, some yes. Some yes, some no. And so I just was wondering if there's some something involved in having a, you know, kind of an open bar um, versus regular life that you. Yeah. It's the way that people overeat when they go to bed. Mm -hmm. So, it is true that so we found this 81 calorie difference, and it may be that in the home they're not presented with as many exciting things. Um, so that's true. There may be a smaller association there. We didn't directly study how much free rain kids have or what's in their pantry, although there are other studies that do look at that. Um, and it is something we do ask some questions about parental restrictiveness. One thing that um, I can point out is. For simplicity, I didn't go into it here, but we also do measure how much control parents exert over what the child eats, where they eat, et cetera, et cetera. And that is positively associated with how much they eat. So the kids whose parents report that they are more controlled over what the kids eat, those kids eat more in our setting. And yeah, and it could be. So the, the theory is, this was found in other studies, the theory is the kids go crazy. They're like, oh my god, I never get Cheetos. And then they just eat and eat and eat Cheetos. However, if you look at the data, that parental restrictiveness is very correlated with the children's BMI. So it could also be that parents of kids who tend to overeat are more restrictive. We can't tease that out in the study, but I think it's worth looking at both, both ways. Because really, the past literature has always said it's the first. And as a parent, you might have heard the word on the street is, don't over-restrict your child, or they'll go crazy at their friend's house. Maybe, or maybe that restriction is helpful in reducing their caloric intake over their childhood. We don't know the answer. You'll... Yeah, so is there a... Um, ethnic bias to the risk alleles um, for um, obesity? That's a good question. Um, the the um, distributions I showed were for non-Hispanic whites. Um, I, I have to look back. I was focusing on that because of our population here, um, but I have to look back. I, I'm not sure what the distribution is. Yeah. Is there a correlation between parents being restrictive for when the children eat versus parents being restrictive for how much TV they have. Because um, to me, it would seem that if they're going yeah. you know, to say, you only eat at the dinner table and yeah. that's what you're going to eat, you're not going to get three hours of TV. So strangely, we saw an inverse correlation between those two. And so again, two ideas. One is that it could be that parents only have a certain amount of bandwidth, and they control one aspect of the child's life or the other. Another idea that um, we're toying with, but again, we, it's just a theory, is that kids who see more food advertisements are exposed to more commercials and therefore request more foods. 
And then so the parents feel like they need to constantly say no to those food requests. Um, again, we can't tease that apart. Yes, Carmen? Do you ask the kids at the end if they realize how many ads they saw and if they were about? Yeah, so we don't ask the kids if they realize how many ads they saw, but we ask them if what they think the purpose of the study is. And we um, tell those, the children when they come that the studies on how they process information from media. And after they see the commercial, we ask them some questions about the commercials they've seen. Did you see an Apple commercial or this commercial? And the vast majority of kids um, say that the study is about process, remembering things from TV. Some mention how it's about eating while they watch TV. Um, nobody mentions the ads. Um, and I think that's probably Horacio is, was an undergrad who assembled the ads. And it was done in a very naturalistic way um, with some neutral ads interspersed. So it's not, and especially because kids see so many food ads, it doesn't really strike you as being that unusual. Bob? Can, can you focus on the advertising by asking whether uh, <coughs> the kids are uh, doing other activities like reading a book or using a so um, to get at the same so variable. Yes. So that's we do ask about physical activity through um, through the day, and other studies have looked at physical activity and to try to isolate is watching TV leading to low physical activity, which is leading to weight gain. And we didn't choose to look at that because the studies are pretty conclusive that it's not, the mechanism by which TV is leading to overweight is not inactivity. Yeah, so we didn't uh, focus on that specifically. Yeah. Yes? I'm wondering in your demographic, whether um, so you notice a difference in um, socioeconomic status, mm. and then if you did the same study with inner city, yeah. So, again, our study is limited in that we're recruiting from this area, and so the diversity that we have is pretty limited. So we we can't look at that. Um, we are hoping to recruit from a little bit larger catchment area for the next phase of the study, and hopefully that will bring in more socioeconomic diversity. Unfortunately, we'll still be stuck with a racial diversity. Um, our kids do watch less TV on average. They, so they watch um, about uh, two hours of TV a day rather than three and a half. So that is slightly different than, and also we have about 20% obesity rather than 30. Yeah. Where are the kids? deprived or anything? Did you control when they had the last meal before they came into your, your eating study? <clears throat> no. So our hope was by provide, we asked them not to eat before they came, and actually not to eat for one hour before they came because of the DNA swab. And then we provided them all with the same lunch. After they ate lunch, we asked them if they were hungry, full, etc. And those kids who said they were at all still hungry, we excluded from the analysis of the snacking phase. And then the scans, they weren't on the same day as the eating? No, the scans were not. They're on a separate day. Yeah, so we provided them with a, a granola bar if they wanted one before the scan. But we did not go through the whole thing of feeding them a whole meal before. 
you know, Q reactivity between Q changes the, like the postprandial. Yes, that's true. That's true, and that's why we've provided them with a granola bar um, to try to standardize that somewhat. Yeah, but that's true. Great study. Thank you. Thanks. Yes. So this is building off of that. I had actually two points. Um, one is I think it'd be interesting to look at a meal more than just one meal because mm -hmm. um, working with children, I'm one of the pediatric dietitians. You will see flexing flows in their intake from day to day, mm -hmm. so we get more information about was it just this isolated meal or is it a general trend in relation to? Yeah. And then the other. Um, point was in what I've seen of the obesity research, the restrictive eating, they were referring to the amount of food being restricted versus mm -hmm. where the child's mm -hmm. eating. Yeah, and we ask we ask if they if the parent restricts how much they eat, but it also asks when they eat, where they eat in addition. But that's true. Yeah. My yeah. But it's again, yeah. Right, it's the how much, yeah. And we have the ability to just look at that single variable. So in terms of measuring many meals over time, I think that's a great idea. It, logistically, I'm not sure it's possible. Um, there have been feeding studies in older populations where they go to a lab for a week and they do things like that. But in our age group, I don't think it's possible. Yeah. Tor? television and other media yeah so it's really it's really um, become more difficult to capture all of the ad exposure that kids see because it's not only you know three networks it's all of the cable television and everything plus Hulu and Netflix and Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. So, one thing that we're um, moving towards is um, a method of looking at ad exposure by prompting them with stills or sound clips from advertisements on various forms of media and seeing if they recognize them. Um, so that would be a way to actually get their overall ad exposure rather than trying to assess their exposure to all of these different media platforms. Right. Well, in this randomized study, though, you wouldn't think that that would be as important, right? right. But and that's what we think is one of the limitations because there have been uh, there have been uh, epidemiological studies that have looked at food ad exposure by rating, uh, by recording how much kids watch TV and consumption. And we think that that is one of the limitations of those types of studies, which is why even though it may not be as um, naturalistic to be in a lab and not in your home, we feel that it is important to do this randomized study. Yeah. Yep. Are you looking at any, sorry, I'm asking Ask away. Are um, aside from you know your um, imaging-related measures, any you know, neuroscience evaluation of you know yeah. responsiveness, delayed discounting, or yeah. that because that may be easier to do with kids and not as expensive. Mm -hmm. as that. Yeah, so we we're asking them the brief questionnaire, which is which measures executive function. It's a parent report. Um, we're also doing a no go 
go, no-go task, which kind of measures impulsivity. Uh, so those two uh, tasks are, are being done right now. Yeah, and again, we, we haven't analyzed that data yet, but we have a lot of data from this study that we can look at in the future. Yeah. Yes? When you found that um, the kids with the television in their room gained about a pound a year, mm -hmm. um, what did the kids without a television gain? Or is that in addition to what the average kid gains? Yeah, that's in addition to what the average kid gains. And I should say that we, we kept it as BMI rather than BMI percentile, just to, for ease of interpretation. But when we replace those, um, when we use BMI percentile, we have similar positive results. Yeah. Did, did you look by the age of the kids? Like, you know, younger kids gain more? Um, yeah, we, I'm trying to remember. We did think there was a hint of a, an association there, but it wasn't significant. I can't remember which way it was, actually. Yeah. Yes? I have a really good question about age effect modification and just the eating. You know, mm -hmm. 500 extra calories. Yeah. Like, does that differ by age or yeah. does it differ by eating alone? So, um, so we actually, I wanted to do even younger kids than 9 and 10 year olds because what happens with the older kids is they tend to be more reserved and have more control, especially the girls. So there is, as kids get older, they tend to eat less in this free snacking phase um, in other studies. So we have a pretty narrow age range here so that we didn't see that, but other studies have found that. <laughs> kids who are heavier eat more. and. That's um, partly why we want to do a longitudinal study to see if the eating more also precedes the weight gain. Um, but that's why we adjusted for the estimated energy requirement, which includes BMI. Right. I was thinking that it's another way of getting at that sort of genetic. Yeah. 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 It's true. So when you do, when we stratify by yeah. overweight and obese, we do see a larger effect. Yeah. Great. Great, thank you. Thank, thank you. Very much. you.